I'm excited about how technology is uh, being democratized, how it's plunging in cost. And we have one of our missions is to positively impact one billion people in the next decade. Ignition sequence The relevance of a new technology to solving problems that affect like a billion people. All great stuff happens because someone inspires someone else to do something. The next wave of innovation is going to be eroding the territory. Hello, futurists. Great to be back in studio once again for our Exponential Africa podcast. With me in the studio is Yuri Licht. How's it, Yuri? Hey, man. It's good to be back in studio with you. Um, I know today we're going to be uh, introducing people to Nathaniel Calhoun. Um, I hope by now everybody heard our talk with Ramez Nam. Uh, it was a really exciting conversation. But just before we, are, we, we talk Nathaniel Calhoun, just give me a quick little something-something that... Uh, you did this week that was exponential. Maybe, you know, you spoke to a group of people. You got to share some knowledge. You know, what you've been up to? So it was quite a, quite an exciting week. We've been leading up to our Singularity U South Africa Summit. We're three months away and we are almost sold out on tickets. We've opened our exhibition areas and we have launched SU Ventures where we're going to send one lucky South African with a great idea and a great exponential company to go and get incubated and uh, accelerated by SU Ventures and get the opportunity to get funding in Silicon Valley. So it really is a special thing for us. So we're really excited to be aligned with SU Ventures this year. And what's cool is, you know, I've done my research about them as well. Uh, they've given over $280 million in funding. Yeah. They've helped over 55 companies. So I'm really excited to see what kind of South Africans can align themselves with them as well. For this episode, we actually chatted to Nathaniel Calhoun, who's a Singularity University Faculty Chair for Global Grand Challenges. And he is just an incredible, incredible human being who is an expert in education, governance, innovation, and new business models. And we are truly grateful to have him on the show. Yeah, uh, I mean, my, my impressions of him sitting in the room with him was just, here is a hypnotic rock star-like figure who lives and breathes all these things that he mentions, and you can sense that now there's a guy who really wants to change the world. And uh, it's super exciting that he's coming to ASU Summit later uh, in October, and um, we're very excited to be hearing from Nathaniel now, but uh, just before we jump into that, uh, let's just give a quick shout-out to our partners. Well, I mean, our partners have been absolutely amazing. Now, I want to make special mention of our collaboration partner, Standard Bank. Standard Bank regards Africa as her home and makes sure that she drives her growth. And we are thrilled to have them along this journey with us. We've been building a fantastic relationship and, and we're very excited about the next couple of years. Our global partner, Deloitte, working with the local team has shown us how Deloitte really does live up to the mantra of delivering impact into Africa. And of course, our strategic partners, MTN, SAP, H. MTN Liberty have been incredible collaborators. MTN is leading the way in communications, bringing voice and data solutions to over 30 million South Africans alone. SAP Africa, which aims to bring exponential thinking to their employees, partners and customers, will have a profound impact on their organization, South Africa and the rest of the continent. HP is helping customers use technology and leverage innovation to fuel growth in Africa and the world. And finally, Liberty which strongly leverages its years of experience to pioneer new ways to guide people towards financial freedom. Okay, great. Uh, Mick, thanks for that shout-out. I think let's jump into it, right? Let's go to Thailand. Let's go back to Thailand. So here we are in Thailand. So, so our goal as Singularity U South Africa is to, is to bring this, this thinking from Silicon Valley and from around the world so that we can embrace exponential technology and, and, and try to solve some of these global grand challenges that are really, really prevalent in South Africa and Africa. 
And, you know, we're really excited to be speaking today to Nathaniel Calhoun, who is an expert in the Global Grand Challenges. And you're basically living, you're living the, the, the real story, right? I've spent a lot of time living and working in uh, Sub-Saharan Africa, West Africa mostly, a little bit of time in Southeast Asia. Um, I'm based in New Zealand now where the Global Grand Challenges express themselves differently, but the work that I do with my company, the work that I spend my time on is usually engaged with structural inequalities and big systemic injustices that manifest as the Global Grand Challenges. Wow. wow. Do you want to just, for our audience, give us a bit of a background on, on, on your story, where you come from, how you got involved with Singularity University? Sure. Um, a while back, maybe five, six years ago, Singularity uh, started to try to build out its impact faculty by reaching out to different organizations around the world that do impact work. So one of the ones that they talked to was UNICEF. Uh, they reached out to the person who heads UNICEF's innovation lab and asked for recommendations of people that were solving, so to speak, or working on solutions to um, different challenges. And he recommended that Singularity contact me around education because I've been working in uh, education both within ministries of education and outside of ministries of education for pretty much all of my career. Um, and I got a conversation going with uh, the person who was leading that faculty at the time, um, and it seemed like a good fit. So I originally came in and gave some uh, content and sessions at our global solutions program around education. Uh, but over the years, I've um, kind of helped to expand the impact focus of the university and moved more into addressing uh, like poverty and prosperity issues, governance and civic tech, and uh, kind of the design approaches to solutions that are more likely to help technology land well and less likely to just enrich a small group of people. I think it's so fascinating because we don't actually have the answers on how this technology is going to, is going to come into our world and, and, and for us to process it so that we can use it to, to our best ability. But just, just can you just give us a brief explanation is what is a global grand challenge? What are these challenges that we're facing as humanity? Yeah, I mean, the global grand challenges as, as a set of vocabulary has been picked up by a number of aid organizations. The Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation refer to the global grand challenges. A lot of others refer to the, um, you know, the challenges behind the sustainable development goals. Um, so the ones that Singularity is focusing on, you know, it's, uh, it's challenges around water, around uh, food, around environment, shelter, poverty, governance, health, security, disasters. It's these big giant verticals where we know that our systems are not up to the challenge of providing people with what they need. You know, when you look around and you're like 2.5 billion people lack sanitation. We're losing at that one. That's terrible, right? That's a, that's a lousy... Completely injustice. I mean, yeah. I can't believe that's actually a step. Yeah, and our education, our education systems globally, even where they're... Even the best ones that we have in a lot of wealthy countries are still not preparing us for tomorrow. Even if they're giving one nation an advantage over another nation, they're not preparing them for 10 years from now based on where technology is going. So, like, you can look around and even the places that we're proud of don't seem equipped for tomorrow, realistically. Um... So it's, yeah, it was basically Singularity trying to distinguish itself in Singularity from other organizations saying, um, we want to always put on this lens of what is the relevance of a new technology to solving problems that affect like a billion people, not, okay, my, my exotic pet has cancer or, you know, like these, these things that are luxury problems or, or niche interests. They were like, what are the problems that affect a billion people or more? Um, and, you know, you flex on that. If, if there aren't a billion blind people, fine. You look at disabilities, you look at, like, you look at problems expressing themselves in humanity, niche illnesses and whatnot. 
Um, but whenever you see a technology come along, if you really can't see a way that it applies to those problems, it probably doesn't belong on the Singularity University kind of curricula, so to speak. Okay. So we've heard, we've heard of all these different technologies, how they are aiding some of these global grand challenges, like drones can pull you out of a disaster situation. Can you give us a few examples of how exponential technology is actually aiding in, in these global grand challenges and, and what you can see, which exponential technologies do you, do you predict will help solve some of these problems? Yeah, it's... So people are, there is optimism about what robotics can eventually do, and that's whether it's flying robots or land-based robots, and it's usually in the disaster realm. It's usually like that you can put a robot where you can't get a person. It's too much radiation, too much fire, something's too heavy. And we'll get there now and then, but our supply chain, our ability to move those robots to where people need them in the moment, I'm, I'm bearish on that for the next, you know, five to ten years. Um, the, the, the exponential technologies that roll out fastest are things just like data science and artificial intelligence, where when you, when you bring to a large organization or a government or a municipality um, a system for thinking about what the data is that they are capable of collecting and what the database architecture might look like for organizing that information, and then what type of uh, kind of heuristics to, um, to look through to try to pull out insights that could make programming more efficient or make uh, targets more reachable. Um, like that's already happening, right? We're seeing like, you know, the World Food Program or, or UNICEF or UNHCR, they're already uh, consulting with and hiring and engaging people that work in data science um, and AI, especially in, in health, some of the uh, applications for making diagnostics easier that rely on machine vision. Um, those are pretty easy to, to push out. Um, and a lot of the stuff around blockchain people are excited about because it doesn't have to be um, it doesn't have to be costly or expensive to bring some of the um, the trust and the accountability that blockchain can bring to supply chain management, voting registration, tracking service delivery, attendance in schools. Um, I look at those things that are more like purely software and digital as having a near-term effect on the continent and the things that rely on our supply chains and energy infrastructure as not so realistic. So when people are like, we'll just 3D print everything all over the place, I'm like, yeah, so have you solved, like, you know, the grid doesn't reach where the disaster is? They're like, no, we'll put up, like, a grid there. And you're like, yeah, there's really good companies working on that, and it's hard, and it takes a long time. You're not just going to magically roll out energy everywhere. Right? That's like there's market issues that that yeah. takes time. You need the economy needs to catch up. Yeah, but you can throw all kinds of things through like the pipeline of a mobile network. Like that can reach everywhere pretty quick. But like we're way too people that haven't tried to operate in sub-Saharan Africa really don't understand how hard it is to get hardware everywhere and then to maintain it and then to maintain a motivated and incentivized workforce to look after it. Even like solar energy panels and inverters and stuff. You can't just like imagine how that would look if you rolled it out in Switzerland and then superimpose it on Burundi and think that that maps, you know? I think that when you're trying to, to, to bring us... Okay, there's two different ways. There's, like a, there's a fork in the road right at the beginning. If you're going to do things according to best practices, you want to look, say, at like the principles for digital development, which most of the international aid and development community uh, have signed on to in the last five or six years. They outline what it means to actually co-create and co-evolve a set of appropriate technological solutions with the people that uh, that need those solutions. And like, it totally rules out the idea that you cook this up in a lab in Silicon Valley and lob it over for profit into some market in, in, in Africa, right? It just invalidates that whole approach. 
If, however, you don't feel like invalidating that approach and you still think that your like laser for shooting mosquitoes is somehow relevant, right? If that's still where you are in your, in your worldview, it's still appropriate for you to look out for the, the true edge conditions, find the countries that are notorious for being really hard to operate in, right? Take your little, take your little dog and pony show to Chad or the Central African Republic, right? And just set yourself there and see if you can build something that lasts through all the different seasons of the year, then you can scale it pretty much anywhere, right? There are some countries where we know like that because of like a long-standing lack of rule of law, because of like population movements, because of rough climate situations, because of epidemics, we know that if you've made something work there, you are a good logistical operator. And you you can work with people, obviously, if you did it. You can work with weird, like like behind the scenes shadow politics and culture. And so like technologists don't get to skip that. They don't. Like, it doesn't, like, the, your app, it's not going to speak to people, right? At best, you might get, like, you can get people gambling anywhere you want. Like, you can play to people's addictions. Sure. And a lot of Silicon Valley does that. They're like, oh, look, we, we gamified something and we, we got people to do it a little bit. And you're like, right. And what kind of, like, actual monitoring and evaluation are you doing around the end results? Or are you just tracking that you have users, right? And there's, there's an unwillingness to engage with the, the messy permanence of solving these problems that... Um, that you have to get away from if you want to take any credit, you know? Yeah. So do you, do you think by solving some of these problems, we're going to create new problems? I mean, well, where is the vacuum? How does it work? Is it, is it solve a problem and a new problem comes, or is it solve the problem and, and, the, and the problems go away? So Kevin Kelly, right, the guy that uh, started Wired Magazine and wrote uh, Inevitable recently, had a great quote where he's just like, you know, the, the, today's technological solutions are like the problems of tomorrow. And I think that... Um, that has very often been true, and that's likely to hold a lot of truth, certainly. But the thing is, anytime somebody gives you like a cautionary message, you have the opportunity to incorporate that into your design principles, right? And mitigate the risk that that caution is ignored. So if, if, if you think, okay, what are, what is the set of things that could go wrong with the approach that I'm bringing? The likelihood that you cause more problems goes dramatically down. And so my colleague, uh, Nick Hahn and I at the uh, we put together a system called uh, impact-centered design. It's really simple. It's just a set of basically five different sets of tests that you can ask yourself to look for adverse ramifications in like the socio-political spectrum, in the like cultural uh, area, environmentally. It's just basically like from operating in really difficult situations where you're like, whoa, we didn't think of this, and now there's huge religious opposition. You know, we didn't think of this, and now there's like people are opting out of like a health outcome. Like once you start to see all the ways that you mess up a system by ignoring it, you can start to learn what questions to ask on the way in. Um, I, so I do think it's possible to actually bring a solution that doesn't mess something up for everyone. But I think that most of us are in such a hurry, either because of the types of businesses that we created or the types of expectations that we created or the stories that we tell ourselves about ourselves that we don't take the time to mitigate those risks. So it's really about taking your time, stepping back and asking the right questions in order to, to, to mitigate the risk so that you don't, when you solve the problem, you don't, it doesn't carry on or create a, a new, uh, bigger problem. And there's this guy, Yuval Noah Harari, who writes in his book, um, Homo Deus, yeah. that he believes the next big three problems, once we solve war, epidemics and famine, is going to be uh, prosperity, happiness and immortality. Yeah. Um, how, what's your thoughts on that? I get where he's going and like I I've enjoyed 
the lens on history and anthropology that, that he brings in his writing. Um, and, you know, taking care of, even whether you're tracking up Maslow's hierarchy of needs and being like, you know, you're not going to make me happy if I'm like, if I walk outside the hotel and I'm dodging bullets, right? You're looking after my security first. If I'm hungry, you're looking after that first. Like, so it makes sense to say that you have to solve those before you tackle the other ones. Um, the immortality thing, I don't know about that. It's a bit of a fetish for for a lot of people right now especially people in silicon valley yeah i mean like look there's a certain you get when you've saturated all of these markets when luxury is like so ubiquitous and so affordable that it's boring like what's the next frontier is it space is it is it immortality and it's like okay guys i understand that like you're hungry ghosts but like there's a lot of other more important things right now you know yeah and I mean, what, what advice can you give the audience? Because the guys will, will come in and see you when you come to the, the summit in October. And uh, it's really going to be incredible to have you. So thanks thanks so much for attending. But what advice can you give them now when they listen to this, this podcast that they can take away from it and go and actually start making a difference in the world, trying to make their own impact in, the, in some small way? I think that no matter what field you're working in... Um, what you what you have the option to do is to um, modify your way of doing business, modify your way of having conversations, modify your way of approaching customers, clients, or beneficiaries, so that you are asking yourself um, what perspectives, what groups, what people like are not in the room. Like who who am I not hearing from in this process? Who who is not included in what I am doing? And what would it look like to design a way to bring them? into the process that I have. And then what would it look like to start offloading? Like if I've centralized my leadership and control because that makes me feel like I have a more efficient machine or it comforts the investors who are like nervous about the people I work with, how can I start to um, let go of the tightly held authority that limits my ability to hear from these other people? And even if I could operate that way efficiently, I'm not taking the opportunity to share the skills and share the ability that I have with these people that I say I'm in service to. Which means like if I get shot, develop a drug addiction, get bored and go away, I have left none of the capacity with the group of people that I claim to care about to carry on because I liked holding my leadership so tightly. So if you start going in and you look at the new, um, some of the new ways that people are engaging more citizens, engaging more people in conversation, whether it's about like delegative or liquid democracy, whether it's participatory budgeting, whether it's um, some of the processes that you see in, in uh, the kind of open risk mitigation conversations of blockchain uh, companies and crypto startups. And you try to, you try to take the risk of being more um, uh, transparent about the decisions you're making and inviting more uh, contributions to that and then seeing where you can delegate. Like we just, we, we need to personally, individually decentralize. Any of us who have any privilege need to do that. And so like if, if your listeners have privilege, they should do that. And if they don't, then they should go. Well, how do they decentralize? What are, just, just explain that a bit more. It's bringing more, it's, it's inviting more people to contribute to the decisions that you make. So it's actually triangulating your decisions. No, not just making a decision. It's actually getting perspective from many different people mm -hmm. and then and then making a, a decision based on the meritocracy of, of the group. It could be meritocracy. It doesn't even have to be. I'd say, like, just notice where you are a dictator because you're a dictator somewhere. Are you a dictator to your house staff? 
Are you a dictator to your to your to the team you work with? Are you a dictator to your classroom? Are you a dictator like where are you being a dictator? So you look you look for those places where you're just defaulting to this old-fashioned heavy-handed way of being authoritarian um, because that's blocking your learning. It's blocking your ears and your perspective and it's stunting the potential growth and wisdom of everyone around you. Like it's it's basically a force field of ignorance to some extent, no matter how smart you are, that you're holding down because it's your privilege to do so. No, so we had a similar problem like this in South Africa not long ago where we've had a major water crisis in Cape Town and this, there, were, there has been solutions from, from different countries but it was shut down because of politics and because of bad governance. You know, so we've actually experienced this firsthand where we could have solved the water crisis, but because of governance and, and, and politics, it, it never happened. Yeah. So, so we, you know, what you're saying is completely true. We need to break that down and we need to, we need to ask the right questions. And we're really, people get really fixated on having like the right answer. Like, so say you've got, one of you has one solution to water and one of you has another. And like, when you stack them up, maybe one wins at a certain temperature or a certain altitude or with a certain group. We have this need for like one of you to win and get the national contract. And that's stupid. That's really stupid. Like it's okay to have a hundred different approaches to a problem that are all operating to different levels of efficiency yeah. because the teams that build up around those get to keep learning. That's they get stronger. And then yeah. you, you've created an ecosystem instead of trying to pull it all together into something that you could invest in and export to other countries and narrate about to like at the World Bank level. It doesn't always have to be big and global. If it is, you're cutting your own people out of the learning process, and then your own people are less useful to you. Or wow, less actually, I've never heard that part of you. That's really interesting. So I honestly think that there are like, so many of the companies that aren't tracking the new kind of uh, design principles that send public funds towards uh, open source projects and inclusive projects. The com- and this is companies. like They just don't know that this has changed, that public money now goes in a different direction. They still think that they can... like. Go talent scouting around and like slap a bunch of copyrights around something and then like maybe move it from South Africa to Zambia and then maybe Botswana and then they've got a pretty good chance of leaping up into, you know, Ethiopia. They're still thinking like that. Meanwhile, like the all of the public money that is in 155 countries right now that will implement your solution, they've constrained themselves to these principles that mean that like a platform cooperative that is ready to offer up like a copy-pastable um democratic decentralized solution for organizing people around civic engagement will crush you even if you are a successful big private company in South Africa. The next wave of innovation is going to be eroding the territory underneath these giant platform companies, whether they're like logistical, whether they're software, whether they're finance, their terrain is being eroded because public money is now supporting this proliferation of actors who are willing to share their ideas so that their ideas can move horizontally at light speed instead of vertically with the lawyers and the intellectual property and all of that. When you're looking at the place on the exponential curves that we are, we don't have time to do that old way of business. Your idea won't be relevant five years from now. It's relevant now. It's about scalable learning. It's about scalable learning and it's about like it's about releasing control of the quality ideas that we have so that they can get everywhere before they're irrelevant. Because ideas run out of relevancy super fast now. Unless they're about process. If they're actually about something to do with today's, you know, tech, the tech itself, they're they're done. Like an engineer starts school and four years later, like what they learn in the first year is useless. So if they learn something good that year and they're like, oh, do you think I can get a copyright for it? And that idiot just held that idea up. It didn't reach the population. It didn't create a solution. For what? And, and we keep doing that. 
So the previous, companies that are it's still the old model. It's the old way. It's totally the old model. So I appeal to those companies by like I can point them to where their territory is eroding. And I would suggest to them ways that they can leverage that, ways that they can participate in that, ways that they can align their brand with the values that will otherwise critique them into irrelevance, right? I don't think they have a choice ultimately. It's, it's what do they want their legacy to be? Like what, what part of the world do they want to be participating in? You know, so that's, that's kind of how I'd go after them. No, that's really, really interesting. And I, th- I think this has been an incredible session. And I, I, we've, we've, we've unfortunately run out of time, but we definitely want to bring you back into studio to chat when we when we out of Thailand or when you in some uh, foreign country saving the world. So thank you so much for for your time today, and uh, we look forward to seeing you in October in Johannesburg at the at the Singularity Youth Africa Summit in collaboration with our partners. I have to give a shout out to them because without them we wouldn't uh, make make this possible. Which is uh, Standard Bank is our collaboration partner, Deloitte is our global partner. And uh, MTN, SAP, Liberty, and HPR are, are strategic partners. And they've really come to the party to try and make an impact in South Africa and Africa. And I think they're going to get really excited when they, when they hear your talk. And it's going to really change their mindset. So hopefully, just from that, we can make a big difference. So thanks so much, Nathaniel. Okay, we've just heard from Nathaniel. So now we're signing off and saying cheers. Wow. How, how amazing is that? It, it really does bring you right back. And, you know, hearing him say all these things he makes it tangible that you can make a change that all of us together can radicalize the way we work in certain aspects and do these things better yes i mean this is really exhilarating hearing from him i think the guy is he's he's got such an a deep insight into how we need to solve these big issues that 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 humanity is facing that it was really uh, you know for us we've we've really appreciate that he took the time to spend with us and uh, i hope everyone enjoyed the episode and make sure to catch our next episode, which is going to be with Bodana Kasala, who's the International Summit's Global Director for Singularity University. Uh, yeah, that's going to be really exciting. People are going to get to hear about how SU really got formed, what their values are a little bit more. Um, but I think for now, you know, uh, hopefully you're enjoying these, uh, you're sharing them with your friends and family, and finding us on whatever platform you listen to, uh, Stitcher, uh, iTunes, uh, Google Play Store, all those places. We're everywhere. We're everywhere. Cool. That, that's We're us. going exponential. Exponential Africa. Exponential Africa podcast. Thanks for listening. Thanks, guys. Bye.